0: Well, if you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you keep that open at the passage that's just been read to us, and I'm going to pray for God's help to understand it. And if you haven't got a Bible open, then you can hit pause and go and get one. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you that in these uncertain times, you've given to us in your word some very precious promises, promises that are centred on your Son and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And as we come together to look at those promises now, as we gather together around your word, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us clearly. Please encourage us if we are discouraged. And please give us that firm footing on which to stand in these uncertain times. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, for those of you who haven't been with us over these last few weeks, you're joining us Uh, partway through a series in Matthew's Gospel that we've called The Final Few Hours. You see, the final few chapters of Matthew's Gospel cover the final few hours of Jesus' life. In fact, within 24 hours of where we left off last week with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, on his knees in prayer, within 24 hours of Jesus praying that prayer, he will have been betrayed, arrested, tried before the Sanhedrin, beaten, denied by Peter, tried before Pilate, flogged within an inch of his life, and then crucified on a cross. All of that squeezed into a 24-hour period. It's not surprising, is it, that Jesus prayed like he did last week in the garden. Do you remember that prayer? Verse 39 of Matthew 26, going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed. He prayed to his Father in heaven, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. If there is any other way other than the cross, then let it be so. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And the Father's answer was clear. The cup of suffering would not be taken from Jesus. Instead, the father would give his son all the strength that he needed to drink from that cup and to endure the horror of these final few hours. And that's why we pick up the story this morning as Jesus rises to his feet from that posture of prayer to meet his betrayer. Which brings us to the first of three scenes this morning. Firstly, then, we have the betrayal. Have a look, if you would, at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Well, we haven't heard much from Judas since he slipped away into the night on the back of the Passover meal. But as you can see in verse 47, he's been ever so busy. He's used these intervening hours to go back to to the chief priest to assemble this armed crowd before leading them out to the garden of Gethsemane and to what would have been a familiar place for Jesus and his disciples. And so the scene is set. As Jesus rises to meet his betrayer, so Judas arrives in the garden right on cue. And did you notice how he's described in verse 47? He's described as one of the twelve one of the 12 disciples, it's a reminder to us of how incredibly painful this must have been for Jesus to be handed over by one of his so-called friends. don't know if you remember that scene in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe when uh, Lucy is speaking to Aslan after Edmund's betrayal and she turns to Aslan and says, but he's my brother. And Aslan turns back to Lucy and says, I know. And that's what makes it even more painful. Jesus was handed over by a brother and betrayed with a kiss, verse 48. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Now, of course, everything a kiss would normally convey in terms of closeness and trust and affection is completely at odds with what Judas is doing here. He's no longer close to Jesus, but distant. This kiss is not a sign of trust, but of treachery. And there's no affection for Jesus here whatsoever. Just an overwhelming love of self and money that has driven Judas to this point. Well, if you hear last Sunday evening, you may remember that phrase from Psalm 7 that speaks about being pregnant with evil. What a powerful picture that is, to be, to be bursting with wickedness. Well, if Judas was pregnant with evil, then this is the moment where he gave birth in the greatest acts of betrayal. Verse 49, going at once to Jesus. Seemingly without hesitation, he goes at once to Jesus and Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Yet what's maybe even more remarkable than The act of betrayal itself is the response of Jesus in verse 50. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. It's a response that reminds us of two things that we already know concerning the character of Christ. Firstly, his incredible grace and composure towards those who stand against him. We see it throughout the Gospels and of course, we see it most clearly at the cross when Jesus prays for forgiveness for the very people that have nailed him to it. Such is his grace and composure towards those who hate him. Secondly, as we've seen already in this series, nothing takes Jesus by surprise. Jesus knew exactly why Judas was there. Jesus knew exactly what that kiss meant. And so even if it it feels like Judas is the one calling the shots here, he's the one taking the initiative. The reality is actually very different. Jesus is the one who's in control of this scene. In fact, Jesus is the one who's in control of every scene of life, even the one that we're living through today. Nothing takes Jesus by surprise. And so as Judas pulls back with the deed now done, the guard step forward in verse 50 and sees him, which brings us to our second scene this morning, the arrest of of Jesus, And here I think we're meant to see a contrast between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is a picture of composure, whereas the disciples are a picture of confusion. Have a look, if you would, at verse 51. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But in John chapter 18, that companion is identified as Peter, which probably doesn't surprise us. Peter the brave, Peter the reckless. And even if Peter's motives were right, his method was most definitely wrong. You can see that from the sharp rebuke it brings from Jesus in verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword to put that silly little sword away says Jesus do you think verse 53 I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels that's 60,000 angels at the disposal of Jesus Now, just put that into context. In Revelation chapter eight, when the first angel blows his trumpet to announce the next series of global judgments, one third of the world is burned up. That's just one angel. And Jesus here has 60,000 warrior angels at his disposal, each one of them eager to intervene on behalf of their sovereign king. You can imagine them in heaven, looking down on this scene in Gethsemane, ready to to intervene, to to come to, to the garden, to deliver Jesus from this hour. But Jesus never called them. Why? Because his intention was never to save himself, but to save others. I read this same story to Tamir and Caleb in a devotional Bible recently and the comment that it made on this particular verse was brilliant. It said, Jesus could have flicked them away like peas. You know, when you sat around the dinner table and there's a, there's a loose pea lying around, the temptation is to flick him away. All these armed guards with their swords and their clubs and Jesus, such as the power of Christ, could have flicked them away like peas. But he chose not to. Why? Because his intention was never to save himself, but to save others. You see, it's so important that we don't make the same mistake as Peter and think of Jesus as a a helpless victim who needs defending. A victim, yes. Helpless, no. Jesus is God. The reason things happened as they did isn't because Jesus is powerless but because Jesus was purposeful. This was the hour for which he came. The script had already been written. That's what we read in verse 54. Have a look down. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? This is the way that it had to be. And we see the same thing in verse 55 and 56. 56. Look at what Jesus says to the gathered crowd. He turns his attention from Peter to those who have come to arrest him. Am I leading a rebellion, says Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Can you see the scope of the language there? This has all taken place. The betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the beatings, the denial, the trial, the floggings, the crucifixion. This has all taken place, all of it, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. The cross was not an option for Jesus. It was an absolute necessity. And just in case it's still not sunk in, have a look at the end of verse 56. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Even that little detail was prophesied in advance. It's what we saw last week, isn't it? Back in verse 31, on on the back of the Last Supper, as Jesus makes his way with his disciples to the garden, Jesus told them, this very night, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, In the prophet Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophet Zechariah and he says that these things were fulfilled in himself. The shepherd will be struck. He'll be betrayed, arrested, and taken away to be crucified. And the sheep, well, they'll scatter. And that's exactly what happened. In accordance with the scriptures, Jesus is left alone in the garden, betrayed by one and deserted by the rest. The question I think for us is, what are we meant to learn? What do we learn from our time in the garden of Gethsemane? What are we meant to take away from what we've been reading? we could talk about the corruption of Judas we could dwell on his moral blindness a picture of how of how desperately desperately fallen human nature can be we could talk about the confusion of the disciples who slept when they should have prayed and who fled when they should have stayed no doubt we're meant to see ourselves in the disciples as we prayerfully learn from their failings But I think the main thing Matthew wants to draw our attention to in these verses is the composure of Jesus Christ. From the moment Jesus prayed in the garden, he is a picture of of calm, authority, and control. And it's a composure that will characterize Jesus all the way to the cross. Where does it come from? Where does his godly composure find its roots? Well, let me suggest two things to you. Firstly, it comes from knowing that his Father in heaven is good. God is good. All the time, and Jesus knew it. He knew his Father was good. And secondly, it comes from trusting in his Father's good and perfect plans for his life. However dark and, and desperate the road ahead may have looked, Jesus trusted in his Father's goodness and his Father's good and perfect plans and that's how he came to not only endure but to embrace these final few hours for our sake and so for us if we too want to live a life of godly composure then we also need to remember that God is good and his plans are good for God is in control however messy life may feel however disrupted things may be at this time however bleak the outlook, for our community, for our nation, and for our world, we too need to trust in our Father's good and perfect plans for our life. God is good, and God is in control, and those two truths will always be the bedrock of a life marked by godly composure. So we've had the betrayal, we've had the arrest, and lastly, we come to scene number three, the trial of Jesus. Have a look, if you would, verse 57 and 58. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome in Matthew's gospel Peter sits down in John's gospel Peter stands up why the difference well together the gospels are painting a picture for us of Peter's state of mind he's up he's down he's twitchy he's frantic Peter is an agitated figure watching uncomfortably from a distance as this farce of a trial unfolds you see, everything that happens here smells of injustice. Have a look at verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. They weren't looking for evidence. This wasn't a court seeking the truth. They had already made up their decision. They were looking for false evidence to justify their already planned and wicked intentions but as we read in verse 60 none was found the best they can do is to is to locate these two dodgy witnesses who re- misrepresent one thing that Jesus once said How look at verse 61 this fellow Jesus this fellow said I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days But as we know from John's gospel, Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the destruction of his own body on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, the rebuilding of his life on the third day. Yet not once in this scene does Jesus speak up to defend himself. It's exactly what the prophet Isaiah spoke of 700 years before it actually happened. Chapter 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And it's those very words that are now being played out before us in Matthew chapter 26. Have a look at verse 62. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. He did not open his mouth. And so the pressure increases in verse 63. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And finally, with those words, Jesus responds, not to defend himself, but to declare the truth. Verse 64, you said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven one commentator says, this is the great Christological climax of the gospel, the mountaintop moment of revelation. Taking those words from Daniel chapter seven, chapter 7, Jesus claims to be one with the ancient of days. And of course, what is pictured here is not the first advent of Christ when Jesus came, veiled in flesh and clothed in humility, but the second advent of Christ when Jesus returns in glory on the clouds of heaven to administer full and final justice. And with that, the trial is over. Finishing as it began, not just in physical darkness, but in spiritual blindness. Have a look at verse 66 and 67. He is worthy of death, they answered. And they spat in his face and struck him, with their fists. Here we have the scholars of their time, the university lecturers of their day, and they're spitting in the face of Jesus. Not too dissimilar, is it, to our day? Of course, you can't spit on the physical Jesus now. He's in heaven. But sadly, people still spit on his name. Abusive words, derogatory comments, ridicule, mockery, I wonder how that makes you feel if you're a follower of Jesus. I wonder how you'd have responded if you were sat next to Peter in that courtyard on that fateful night. Would you have rushed to the defence of Jesus to, to condemn the condemners? Would you have turned your back on those people in disgust and walked out of the courtyard? Or would you have graciously called each of them to repent of their sin and kneel? before Jesus as their king. You see, one day those officials will stand before the risen Christ in judgment and those perceived positions of power will be turned upside down. It'll no longer be Jesus stood before the officials on trial, but the officials will be stood before Jesus in judgment. And it's no different today. Those who stand against Jesus now will stand before him then in judgment. So don't be afraid of people like that. Don't dismiss those people. Don't turn your back on them in disgust, but move towards them in love, knowing that one day, soon, when Jesus returns in glory on the clouds of heaven, they will realize what they've done. But by then it'll be too late. For today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for all people everywhere to turn to Christ and to say sorry. And that's our prayer, isn't it, as we live through these precarious times that people would turn to the Lord Jesus not just for help in this moment but also for a full and final salvation. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. And it's with these words that I'll finish. I tell you, says Paul, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, as we live through these uncertain times, we thank you again for the unchanging truth of your word. Thank you that the Lord Jesus was willing to walk the way of the cross for our sake. Thank you that he rose from the dead and conquered the grave and that one day soon he will return in glory on the clouds of heaven. And so, Father, in view of that day, we pray that the world around us would not see Jesus as a figure of ridicule or contempt, but the high King of heaven who is worthy of all our praise, the one who came to save. And so, Lord, help us in all our weakness to be a church that is bold enough to speak of our Saviour at this time, that others too may know him as their rock and their redeemer in these uncertain days. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.